Thanks, Rob. Yo, I love preaching on a wet stage. Let's keep doing that. Um, my name is Rudy Hartman. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm on staff here with Doxa. We're with our college ministry uh, particularly, and I'm really excited to continue our series through Daniel this morning. So if you have a Bible, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Uh, if you missed last week, uh, let me catch you up. Rob started our series in Daniel. Um, we meet a teenage Daniel in the first chapter who's been displaced from his home in Israel and put into a three-year training program to be enculturated into the way of Babylon before joining the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. So how he thinks, how he eats, how he acts, how his day is, where he sleeps, what his name is, the language that he's speaking, all of these are elements that are being pressed in on him to form him culturally into Babylon, intended to shape Daniel into the image of Babylon. Daniel, however, resolves, we saw in the text, to resist this attempt at formation By the spirit of Babylon, God gives him favor, shows him compassion, and eventually Daniel is elevated above his contemporaries in this Babylonian cultural formation, not by collapsing into the culture, but by resolving with resilience to hold to and be formed by the way of the God of Israel. Brief catch-up, chapter 1, if this is your, your first week in the series. And kind of coming out of chapter 1, we see this incredible picture of like resolve in Daniel's life. And the question that's on our mind lingering a bit as we step into chapter 2 that we started to answer last week is where did that, where did that come from? Like where did Daniel's resolve come from? What fueled his resilience? What gassed up his, his grit? It doesn't just come from nowhere He's not just white-knuckling his life with determination. There's something behind this degree of resolve, this resilience that we see in this chapter, in the beginning, and through the future chapters of Daniel. We're curious to find out really what it is at the end of chapter 1. We're going to see it here in chapter 2. i got a lot of text to cover if you're there. Um, Not a lot of time, so I want to briefly tell you the story as if you're watching it kind of play out on this stage in four acts. And as I do, I want you to just consider a question as I kind of run through it. And the answer to this question will be the same answer to what fuels Daniel's resolve. So hold on tight to it as we kind of walk briefly through this narrative of Daniel chapter 2. Note takers, if you're ready, you can write this one down. Here's the question I want you to consider as we stroll through Daniel chapter 2. It's very simple. Why is this in the Bible? (laughs) It's a good question to ask whenever you read anything in the Bible, but particularly for this story. Why is Daniel chapter 2 in the Bible? Simple enough, but let's see what you got by the time we get to verse 49. All right, Daniel chapter 2. Four acts of this story. Act 1, verses 1 through 13, the dream. So it's year two of Daniel being in this training program. Year one was great, but now Daniel and his friends are sophomores at a school that they didn't enroll in but were forced to attend. It's also the second year of the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar and his reign in Babylon after taking over after his father. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, we kind of come to him at this point where he has dreamed dreams, and he's so deeply disturbed and troubled by what he has dreamt to the point at which he's incapable of sleeping. So he does what any king in the late 7th century BC would do. He gathers the wise men of his kingdom to interpret the dream for him. It's a pretty common practice. You see it happen in Genesis, a similar uh, account with Joseph and with Pharaoh. It's similar, but it's, it's not at all the same. The dream is different. 
certainly, but what Nebuchadnezzar asks for from these wise men is entirely different and shocking altogether. He gets all his wise men together, and in verses 4 through 9, demands that they tell him both the dream that he dreamt and the interpretation of it. So typically what would happen is the king would say, here was my dream, tell me what it means. And the wise men would say, this is what it means. But King Neb is not playing that game. He says, if you can tell me the dream without me telling you what it was, then I'll believe that you can also tell me the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar does what I'm going to call a spiritual legit check here on his, on his wise men. Um, a couple of years ago, I got super into shoes, like nice shoes. Not that I have them, but just that I like them. They're like art to me, right? Like I got into like Yeezys, Off-Whites, and Jordans, and just like Scots. And like I love the way that these shoes look. I love the design. They're like pieces of art to me. I just appreciate them just, just so deeply. But like underneath kind of this industry of high-value shoes is this whole underbelly of scammers trying to swindle folk out of money by selling fakes. So there's this entire pocket of the shoe industry that's now dedicated to authentication, which is colloquially, sorry, which is like conversationally known as, as legit checking. And Nebi's doing that right here. He's legit checking his wise men. Maybe he saw how some of them had kind of like said stuff to his father and gave bad counsel and were given a pass and he's trying to cull those out. Maybe he's just trying to weed out the snakes. We we see that here in verse chapter 9. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me. Like he knows that some of them are just saying what he, they think he wants to hear so that they can get kind of good favor with him. They can get good standing before him. He's going to say the dream and they're just going to say something good about Nebuchadnezzar and go on with their life and enjoy the status that they get by being one of these wise men. But, but Nebi is legit checking them. He's saying that if you can do it, you'll be rewarded. But if no one can do it, I'm going to kill you all. A little dramatic. Um, but not so far outside the scope for Nebuchadnezzar's history of brutality. This is the same guy that makes King Zedekiah watch as he murders his family and his lineage and then rips his eyes out so the last image burned into his mind that he would ever be able to see was his family and his line dying and being eradicated. So if you have a VeggieTales version of King Nebuchadnezzar, let's like just replace it with a, a, a bit more accurate picture of this vicious king of Babylon. So this is also indicates the seriousness of the dream to him. Tell it to me and tell me the interpretation or everyone dies. Every single one of my wise men and my counselors, including those in training, which would include Daniel and his friends. The wise men beg the king to reconsider, and in so doing, they say no one could do that except for a god. The king denies their plea, gets angry at their delay, and then decrees that they'll all die. This goes out. They're all being rounded up to be killed. And at this point, we get to Daniel, Act 2. Act 1, the dream. Act 2, the prayer. Verses 14 through 23. Daniel and his fellow trainees are being rounded up to, to be killed. And Daniel asks Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, why was this decision made so hastily? You've got to appreciate Daniel here, right? Like, Arioch has come to literally bring him to a mass execution. And Daniel's like, I have a question, right? Like, that's kind of like, okay, cool. Thank, thank you, Daniel. Like, that's interesting. Ariok explains it, and Daniel's like, can you give me some time to try to get the dream and the interpretation? So Daniel and his friends go into Daniel's home, and they pray, asking God for mercy to know this dream and its interpretation. Like, I just want you to feel that for a moment. 
Like the tension of that prayer in that house on this evening. Either God answers this prayer or he doesn't. And if he does answer it, it means life. If he doesn't answer it, it means death. Tensions mount as they are entirely helpless and just asking for mercy from God. They pray. And in a night vision, the dream and its meaning are revealed. And as a result, Daniel blesses God with this beautiful prayer. It's a prayer of relief. It's with life or death and God has made a way for life. End of Act 2, the dream, the prayer, Act 3, the interpretation, verses 24 through 45. So Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar, and he makes it clear in verses 27 and 28 that no wise man, no enchanters, no magicians, no astrologers can show the king the mystery he has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, who has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. The wise men said that only a God could do what Nebuchadnezzar had required. But Daniel says there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. It's a, it's a picture of the sovereignty of God. Daniel is coming not to gain, but out of response. God has given him the dream, the interpretation, so that Nebuchadnezzar might know that there is a God far above the city of Babylon, the king of Babylon, the way of Babylon, and the spirit of Babylon, and the gods of Babylon. There is a God who can do what you have asked. Let me prove it. Daniel first tells him the dream, verses 31 through 35. You saw, O king, behold, you beheld a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest of arms and silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck this image on its feet of iron and clay and broke it into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. They became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away as if they were nothing, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. It's the dream then Daniel gives the interpretation. He says, this was the dream. Now we'll tell the king the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you, Nebuchadnezzar, rule over them all. You're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you will arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And There will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks things to pieces and and, and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Just as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, hold to this. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. It will break into pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. 
So this image of the statue of like a man is intended to represent these four kingdoms that would be established by men. Classically, they're understood to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Progressing from the most to the least firm materials, the most to the least firm kingdoms, each of these world empires would eventually overcome the next and the next and the next until there would be a stone that came and shattered the statue. And in the days of the kings, Daniel says, God would establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Act 3. We get to Act 4, the dream prayer, the interpretation, and the response. Verses 46 through 49. Clearly in awe that Daniel was able to retell the dream, in shock perhaps that his kingdom was going to be overthrown and destroyed, and perhaps relieved that Daniel said, this is going to happen after you, Nebuchadnezzar. He trusts the interpretation, and as such acknowledges the God of Daniel and says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. This story ends with Daniel elevated in Babylon, overseeing the city and the wise men, and, re- and, and, and remaining in the king's court. All right, Daniel chapter 2. <laughs> Four movements, a lot of scripture, a lot of text. Let's get to the question. Why is that in the Bible? What is that doing here? Perhaps this is in the Bible as an early example of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, where he writes, Fear God, but honor the emperor. There's no question that Daniel moders an honor for King Nebuchadnezzar here while still ultimately fearing and worshiping God. This model of cultural engagement that we see across the scripture where there's honor as far as possible for the authority that God has established. Remember it said, hey Nebuchadnezzar, God has given you these things. Honor as far as possible for that authority that God's established, but not a worship of it. Fear God, honor the emperor, cultural engagement. Maybe that's a reason. I don't think it's the reason. Maybe this is in the Bible so that we would learn to more fully trust the Bible. There's passages like this in Scripture where predictive prophecy, like these are the kingdoms that are coming, plays out exactly as it was spoken, go to add massive strength in affirming the authenticity of Scripture. This is just one example of predictive prophecy that's repeated within Daniel. I don't have time to unpack how this comes up again in chapter 7 and 8 and and 10 and 11, where we see this progression of the four kingdoms again. But these progressions of the four kingdoms prophesied by Daniel in this book play out so accurately to what he says, both in their rising and in their falling, that it's intended for us as the readers and as the hearers to take a deep breath. And to remember that we can trust the word of God and we can trust the God of this word. Daniel reveals the dream, calls a shot, and as history progresses, it plays out exactly as he calls it. This is the uniqueness of scripture as it is studied. The prophecies of the Old Testament proving themselves in the short term and in the long term that add to the mountain of proofs of authenticity that exist for us to have a trust in the scripture. So just a pause here. You've written off the Bible, I just need you to know two things. One, please know that the God of the Bible has not written you off. And two, I hope that you allow moments like this to soften your heart to return to the book. Perhaps Daniel 2 is here so we would kind of see a predictive prophecy proven true and our confidence in Scripture would grow. It's a reason, but I don't think it's the reason. So... (laughs) Make it plain, Rudy. Like, why is it in the Bible? Okay, stop dragging us along. Okay. 
The story of Daniel 2 is in the Bible so that it might do for us what it does for Daniel and what it does for the exiles living in Babylon and in these kingdoms that are laid out to come. To remind them and instruct them what their people had been remembering and passing along for centuries. To remind them, here it is, that there's another kingdom that's coming. I'm convinced that this is in the Bible to comfort people who are experiencing pain in their present exile, to give strength to those who are being oppressed and experiencing pressure, who feel beat up in their present culture, to give hope to those who feel hopeless in this present age by reminding us that there's another kingdom that is coming. Imagine for a moment you're just a part of the nation of Israel at this time. You're exiled. You're away from your home. You've been ripped out, and it's shared through oral tradition. And then you later hear the story as it's read aloud from the scriptures. You're in exile. You're in Babylon, but you're reminded in your exile that there's another kingdom that is coming. Imagine that you hear it while you're under the exiled oppression of Babylon and then of Persia and then of Greece and then the dominance of Rome into the first century. Centuries of oppression, centuries of pain, centuries of struggle. But along the way, you're reminded that there is another kingdom that is coming. Imagine that you're a Jewish mother in the early first century whose child comes up to you and asks one of those incredible questions that only children who are old enough to be aware of their surroundings and their history, but young enough to ask the bold questions ask. Your kid comes up to you and says, Mom, I don't get it. I know our history. I know our people have been pushed around, conquered, exiled, and oppressed over and over. I see it every day. I feel it from the Romans. But every day I hear you and Papa, every day I hear Boba Jada, Grandma and Grandma, talk about the stories of our ancestors. And it's full of people of resilience and strength. I hear stories of the goodness of God about a hope in the future. Mom, how is that possible? It doesn't line up with what I'm seeing right now. You look at them amazed at the mind of a child, and you start to tell them the story of a king who hundreds of years ago had a dream. And how a teenager, not much older than them, told the king the dream and the interpretation of the dream, and how God revealed through that teenager that the last four kingdoms would rule and oppress and destroy as image through a statue. And you, you say this and you remember those years of oppression. You remember those years of pain. You remember the fear passed down from generation to generation, the stories of brutalization, the loss of some as they abandoned creator God for created idols and the gods of surrounding nations. And then you pause as you remember that that's not the end of this story. You remember the resilience of your people, the grit of your family. You remember the resolve of many, and you remember what fuels it all. You remember that one crucial detail from the story that you're telling from Daniel 2. You look at your child and you say, but little one, the dream does not end with a statue. The dream ends with a stone. The stone hits the statue and shatters it. The stone is actually greater than the statue. Just as Daniel told the king that these four kingdoms would come and fall, he said that in the time of these kings and beyond, God would establish a kingdom that would never fail and would never falter. And you look at your child and you smile and you say, little one, while this is our present experience, while this is our present reality, there is another kingdom that is coming. As Daniel, as Daniel who was ripped from his home, 
is being trained and enculturated into the city and to worship the way of Babylon, gives this dream and its interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, he is strengthened by the declarative reminder that it is for him of what he'd been taught since he was a young child, that there is another kingdom that is coming. That would fuel Daniel's resolve. It would fuel his resilience. It would fuel his grit. I might be in Babylon right now, but there's another kingdom that's coming. I'm not living for the kingdom that I'm in. I'm looking towards the one that is to come. Why is Daniel 2 in the Bible? To remind us, Doxa, that there's another kingdom that is coming. Now with that in mind, I think there's two very important, we need, important questions we need to ask and answer with our remaining time. The first is this. What will this kingdom be like? You want to remember something, long for something, you got to know what it's like. Chapter 2, verses 44 and 45 give us an answer to this. Five things that we see about this kingdom and what it will be like. First, the text says that it will be set up by God. Think back to the end of the dream, that the stone broke off without a hand touching it. This stone is not moved by man, but by God. And it goes from a stone that hits the statue and shatters it to a mountain to covering the entirety of the earth. This is a picture of the kingdom of God, inaugurated and begun, established and overseen. And as it's established and overseen, it's established and overseen by God who is holy and faithful and able and good. Does that sound familiar, Doxa? It is established and overseen and set up by God alone. It's set up by God. One, two, this kingdom will never be destroyed. It is persistent. In fact, may I just say it like this? It's subversive. It transcends boundaries and barriers that we might put up to try to uh, keep it away, to, to, to tre- create blockades between us as individuals, even in rooms like this. The kingdom of God uh, transverses, transcends, subverts those barriers that we would put up with our mind, with our lives, with our culture, with whatever. It will never be destroyed. It will never be resisted. Number three, this kingdom is not left to another people. That's to say that God will never abandon his kingdom. What you're hoping in is not something that you're hoping in as if it's wishful thinking, like maybe God will will oversee this kingdom. It's a sure hope that he will set it up. It'll never be destroyed. And then he says, I will never leave it. I won't leave it over to anybody else. In fact, what I'll do with this kingdom, I won't leave it to other people, but I'll gather all people to come in and be a part of it. This incredible picture at the end of Isaiah of all of the nations coming in and together, this multi-ethnic picture of the family of God coming together in the image of this kingdom. It will not be left to another people. He won't abandon it, but he'll gather all people together to be a part of it. Number four, it will crush all kingdoms That that statue that represents the kingdom of man is shattered by the stone. The stone turns into a mountain. The mountain overtakes the entirety of the world. This should remind us, or maybe maybe we think of when we hear that uh, story that Jesus tells in Mark chapter 4 about a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds that's sown and planted into the ground and over time grows up to be the biggest of all the trees in the area, so big that all types of birds from all types of places can come and find their home in it. It crushes all other kingdoms because it's so much stronger and greater than all other kingdoms. And number five, this kingdom will endure forever. It is resilient It endures as long as the one who set it up endures, which is to say, eternally. This is the kingdom of God. You see it all over the text. Christ's first words in the Gospel of Mark are recorded as being about this kingdom. 
that Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This kingdom is good news, but what is it? I'm going to riff off of one of my favorite living theologians, Patrick Schreiner, who defines the kingdom like this. He says that the kingdom is the presence of God with the people of God in a particular place. Presence, people, place. We see Daniel point towards it. Jesus says that it's come near, and he asks us in his prayer to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Martin Luther King Jr. is writing a letter from Birmingham jail on the margin of a newspaper, he notes that the early churches were like colonies of heaven, kingdom colonies marked by God's presence with a people in a place. So already we get tastes of the kingdom, though we have not yet experienced its fullness. Present in part and in pictures as God's presence is with God's people in a place, but not fully come. If you were to flip to the end of the Bible, we're given a picture of this fullness of the kingdom. So we see God's presence perfectly known by his people in a place called the new heavens and the new earth. This is the fullness of the kingdom of God. We get a snapshot of it in Revelation 21 verses 3 through 6. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Presence, people, and place. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In this kingdom, death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, Right because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. That's a picture of this kingdom that is hoped towards in the middle of exile, in the middle of questioning what comes next, what will happen next. This is the kingdom of God that, everyone, that these, these people before us look towards and that doxa we are also to look towards. That in our weakness, there's a resilience that's built as we look towards this kingdom. In our cultural pressure, there's a peace and courage that is available as we look towards this kingdom. In our hopeless situation, situations. There's a hope that's formed within us as we look towards this kingdom. But how, how do we look towards something that we haven't yet seen? Right? As we read Daniel 2 and this sinks into our bones, we're invited into the ancient practice of remembering the future. Remembering the future. I've shared this story at Salt Company before, but a few years ago, I went running with a guy named Curry Kennedy. I say his full name so that you all might know that this man was mean to me. Um, I, no, I love Curry so much. Him and Liz are incredible. Um, he invited me one morning. We were like just new in Pennsylvania, and he invited me one morning to go mountain running with him. So mountains are, I'm kidding. No, um, so, so I'm sorry. We're in the Midwest. Okay, so, uh, so, so I'm sorry. Uh, so, so he invites me to go mountain running with him. 
And I'm, <laughs> guys, I can't even get through this story. We, we go out mountain running and we run and it's like a mile and a half from where we parked the car to the base of the mountain. I'm doing the math in my head. I'm like, mile and a half there, mile and a half back. That's a 5K. I think I'm done. Like, is this mountain running? Like we run to the mountain and back. Like how much fun was that? Okay, great. Right. And he's like, do you want to go the short way or the long way when we get to the base of the mountain? I'm like, I want to go the short way. Right. Like that's like an easy answer, easy question. And he's like, are you sure? Now, when he said that, I should have said no. I said yes. <laughs> and it was steep, <laughs> and it was uphill, and the, the path was kind of tended to, but there were these thorny bushes that I would just, just rip me as I ran past them. There was an entire, like, 200-meter section of this, like, 45-degree angle hill that was just rocks, and not little rocks, like the big rocks that are kind of jagged rocks, like, terrible. So he's, like, running with me, and I'm like, just take off, man. And he's like, all right. And he, like, bolts away, and I'm like, I didn't mean it. Like, I didn't mean, like, leave me, right? And so I get, like, queasy. There's spots where I have to stop and, like, edge over, like, the side of this mountain, and we get to the top, and he's there, he's been there for a while, and I'm there, and I'm ready to, like, low-key, like, give him a piece of my mind, because I'm like, this was terrible, and I can't believe you made me do this, and I don't believe I have to go back down it, and then run another mile and a half back to the car. Sorry, <laughs> therapy. Uh, and we get, we, get to, um, we get to the top of the mountain. We get to the top of this mountain, and Curry says, come over here. And I'm like, I'm coming over. No, I... And he, he points and he says, look, you need to tell me this was here. But there was this incredible view through these trees of the area that we lived in that was known as the Happy Valley. And you just look out over it, and it's like 7.30 in the morning. We started running really early, so you just, the sun has just come up. It's coming over this valley, between these two mountains that just, it's all set inside of. You can see, like, in way in the distance, like a plane kind of really majestically coming in. You see birds. You see, like, the farmland. You can see the surrounding cities. I can see the campus of Penn State. I can see all these things. And, and, and I just remember just staring at it. And in that moment, just, just feeling like, like, just not being attentive to how my body was feeling anymore. Like, my legs just didn't hurt as much anymore. My anger towards curry was quelled. My, 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 my heart rate was going down as I just looked and I just stared at this incredible picture at the top of this mountain that was before me. And, and then I ran back down just with that on my mind and it just, it, I ran past areas where I'd felt queasy and areas where I'd like wanted to cuss very, very loudly and like w wanted to never be friends with curry ever again. Like I ran past these areas and I just didn't even think about it because what was on my mind was this picture that I'd seen at the top of the mountain. And I, and I had this thought as I was running down. I was like, what if that had been on my mind running up? Like, like what if somehow Curry had been able to fully capture the picture that was waiting for me at the top of the mountain? I wonder if my run up the mountain, I actually wouldn't have been so worried about the rocks. I wouldn't have been so concerned with the thorns. Maybe my body would have like, I wouldn't have been so concerned, so nervous, so worried as I was running up the mountain because I knew what was waiting for me at the top. What if I was able to remember my future on the way up the mountain? This is how we endure in the experience of our exile. This is where resolve comes in when we're in the midst of our Babylon. That in pressure and in pain, we have to pause and remember the future. That that picture is coming. That another kingdom is coming. 
And it fuels our resilience and our resolve here and now. Now, just a brief note, because I'm saying exile in Babylon, and you might think that's just hyperbolistic rhetoric. And so let me just clarify and pull that from the 7th century B.C. into Wisconsin 2022. To be clear, I don't think that our exile looks like an overwhelming conquering of a nation or a group of people like theirs did. This was an exile that came after they'd run from God for a long time. While it's true of them, I don't think that will be our exact experience. We're not a theocracy in America, so let's just get that out of the way, right? But Christian, don't be fooled. Until you're in that kingdom that's coming, we are in some sort of exile. We wait for the city and the kingdom that is to be built by God. So what does our exile look like now? If you'd indulge me, I think it looks like death by a thousand cuts over time. I think it looks like small incremental changes and compromises accelerated and solidified by critical world events. In the thickest days of these last few disruptive years, I remember hearing people say things like, I can't wait until we get back to normal as it related to following Jesus in, in church life. And to be fair, like part of me totally got that. To be honest, part of me was and has grown as that kind of has continued, that phrase, confused by it. Maybe this is me showing my youth. I've only followed Jesus for 12 years. Some of you have followed Jesus longer than I've been alive. But if you'd indulge me, the idea of returning to normal was perplexing to me. First, what do we mean by normal? And was it all that great to begin with is a question we have to consider individually. Maybe it was. Statistically, for some, I suspect that it wasn't. And second, forgive me if this sounds dreary, but indulge me again. If we're longing for normal or we're longing for normal, I gotta ask you, how is normal doing right now? Like, how is it? I wonder if for some of us, by normal, we mean a way of following Jesus that fits into our lifestyle or at least fits in a familiar way. A way of following Jesus where we've figured out how to be formed by Jesus enough to be different, but not so much so that we're uncomfortable in the culture we find ourselves in. God, let your kingdom come and your will be done. So long as your will and kingdom fit in this state of normal, I've figured out for my life. Where Christianity works for me so long as it doesn't chafe too hard against the culture that I'm in, so long as being a Christian doesn't cost me too much. I've wondered if over the next 50 years, following Jesus and seeing, seeking the kingdom of God will be significantly more difficult than it was for the last 50, as this experience of cultural Christianity in America continues its slow death. I wonder if our experience of exile will be a practice of loving and following Jesus and looking for the kingdom in a time when there is no cultural benefit found in doing so. I wonder if that's actually going to be our normal. Where being a Christian isn't just politely categorized as a weird or a strange thing, but in some ways to some people is considered dangerous as the cultural rhetoric redefines Christianity without asking Christians to chime in, much less Christ himself. Perhaps you're experiencing that now. If this happens, if it grows more difficult to follow Jesus, what will fuel your resilience? What will, to use Jesus' words, strengthen our love so that it doesn't grow cold? What will help us to endure and have joy in what may be a difficult few coming years? Jesus is worthy. Yes, that's not the question. The question is, how will we resolve, have resolve, resilience, joy, love, and hope, even in our experience of exile? Scripture would give us a laundry list of answers, but near the top would have to be this, remembering that there's another kingdom that is coming, set up by God never destroyed, never abandoned, above all kingdoms, enduring eternally.
And as we remember what is coming in full in the future, we actually are invited to practice and participate in how it has come in the present. Just consider these words that you've heard from this stage. The glory of God and the good of Madison. As we remember our future, this phrase actually can be a framework for us practicing our future. For the glory of God, we get to gather on a Sunday and remember together and to sing together. We, we, we gather to worship, which will be a distinguishing mark of this kingdom as every nation, tribe, tongue, and people come together and sing in unity to Jesus Christ. We prioritize gathering on Sunday. I want you to just take a moment when we sing here in, in a minute. Just take a chorus where we're singing. Maybe sing softly or don't sing at all. Don't make it awkward, but maybe like look around a little bit. And as you, you sing, just to remember that while it is you and Jesus, it's also us and Jesus because kingdom is not just an individual and their king. It's a community and our king. So look around as people sing. Take it in and participate now. Remember that the kingdom is coming where an innumerable amount of people will be singing to the glory of God. As we pursue justice and mercy in our community for the good of Madison, it's because Christ has pursued justice and mercy for us through his gospel. It's accomplished for our good first through the good news of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the good news of his kingdom coming. We apply what he accomplished as we leverage our lives for the good of those around us as God's presence is with his people and we seek the good of a place. We enter into a participation of seeing a part of the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. A daily life in the kingdom of God is marked by perfect justice, perfect mercy, and perfect goodness. And as we love our neighbors and we love one another, as we work to see the good of Madison, which is full of people that God loves and God cares about, we get to see glimpses and pictures and portraits of that kingdom that is coming here now. So even if it gets harder to follow Jesus in cultural pressure, we'll still sing. And even if it gets harder to follow Jesus because there's no cultural benefit, we'll still seek mercy and justice and love of neighbor and one another. Why? Because we are remembering this kingdom that is coming and we get to practice and participate in how we see parts of it in the present. It's not time for a church to shrink back, but to stand and to sing and to serve, to be resolved, to be resilient. We'll love God and we'll love people because we've been loved first by the king and his kingdom is coming. Speaking of the king, <laughs> second logical question here. If this is the kingdom that's coming, then what will this king be like? Prior to the birth of Jesus, they would have referred to the king as the Christ or the coming Messiah. We know him to be Jesus Christ who has come, who has lived, who has died and has risen again. Jesus Christ is the king of this kingdom. Can I preach for just a little bit as we consider these categories of the kingdom again? Is that all right, Doxa? This kingdom is set up by God and inaugurated by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just consider the cross of Christ. Prior to him being hung, Christ is wrapped in robes the color of royalty, and a mocking crown made of thorns is placed on his head, our king. A, a plaque is hung over his head on the cross as he dies for you and me that says, this is the king of the Jews, King Jesus. The king is shamed so that the shame that we deserve for our sin might be taken on him. The king suffers so the suffering that we deserve for our sin is taken on him. The king bleeds so that the brokenness in our life due to sin may be 
be taken on him as he is our sacrifice on our behalf. This is the merciful, gracious king of this kingdom, taking punishment so his people might be made free. This is his gospel. It's his good news that the king has destroyed that which was threatening to dominate his people. He defeats sin by taking it from us on himself, putting it in the grave, and giving us place with God and in the kingdom. He is merciful, but do not mistake his mercy for weakness. He is a powerful king. He rises from the grave to demonstrate it once and for all as an act of power. There was a stone in the dream that was thrown to shatter the kingdoms. And there was a stone outside of Christ's borrowed tomb that rolled away on the third day. So the power of sin and death might be shattered as well. Christ says through his resurrection, I will never be destroyed and neither will my kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus will never be destroyed. As death could not defeat Christ the king, it will not destroy his kingdom. And there will be no other ruler. He won't leave it to another group of people, but it's held and ruled by the gentle hand of Jesus Christ himself. He gathers the nations to himself. The kingdom, a multi-ethnic family wherein every tribe, tongue, and nation is invited to come home and worship. Might we exemplify that here at Doxa? He gathers and he will never leave, never abandon, never forsake the people of his kingdom. And no other kingdom will weigh against King Jesus. Babylon may boast, Persia may persecute, Greece may harass, and Rome may roar, but the kingdom of God is calm because King Jesus has victoriously risen. No kingdom holds a threat against him. Christ is the cornerstone who will shatter the statue. Death and darkness did what they could, but Christ has overcome it for the sake of his kingdom. And as the kingdom lives eternally, as the king, sorry, lives eternally, His kingdom will endure eternally, which is why Christ alone is the only one who can offer eternal life. That which is dead can never offer life. Only Christ in his present risenness and resurrection can offer eternal life because he eternally lives. Everything else leads to death. Christ alone offers the path to life. Think about how Nebuchadnezzar responded to this dream being interpreted. Your God is indeed the God of God and the Lord of kings. What a title for Jesus. He's the one who is coming to finally destroy the wickedness and evil that is in the world, represented by this very king, and to put a full and final end to the ruler of this world, to the spirit of Babylon. And when he returns, Revelation 19.16 says that on his robe and tatted on his thigh, his name is written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the name that he alone is worthy of. When the king returns and brings the kingdom, every knee on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is both King and Lord. Let me say it like this to close, Doxa. We beat Kanye to it thousands of years ago. Jesus Jesus is king. And this is the reality of this kingdom. And this king that fuels our hope and fuels our resilience and fuels our comfort and our resolve and our love and our joy to glorify God, to seek the good of Madison. Here we remember the future that another kingdom is coming and we desire to see his kingdom come here on earth in the nations in Wisconsin and Madison on the campus as it is in heaven. To follow King Jesus, who knows more than a little bit about suffering and resilience. To long for people to know this same King. All right, I know I said two questions, but I'm just going to take one more. Um, We've got to consider, what's the kingdom like? Who's this King? How, How do I know that I'm a part of this kingdom? How do I get in? You see, you can't have hope in a kingdom that you're not a part of. 
The only way into this kingdom is if the king himself is your way in. The kingdom is not a project we accomplish. It's a people we belong to because it's led by a king that we belong to. So how do I belong to this king and his kingdom? Well, in the Old Testament, they looked forward in faith towards the one who was the Messiah, the Christ. And on this side of the cross, they looked forward to what they didn't know. We look forward to what we, we look backwards to what we do know. That on this side of the cross, we look back at King Jesus. We look back at his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection to put our trust in our King as Lord and Savior. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, how do you get in? Just lay it out like this. You come to the King. And you ask him to let you in. When you come to Christ as King, let me warn you, you... You have to renounce everything else that you might consider king. Whatever occupies the throne of your life, even and especially if it's you. You have to understand that what you're saying when you come to Christ and say, I want to be in your kingdom. I want you to be my king and my Lord. You come to him, you you ask him to let you in. You got to understand that you're not saying, Jesus, let's set up two governments in my life. Two governments are set up in one space. What creates is this kind of war but instead we say we surrender what's on the throne we surrender the things that we might look to and this we surrender all of these things we surrender every other part every other piece and we come to jesus and we say i have nothing to give i trust in you as savior and as king please let me be a part of your kingdom and the beauty is that his answer is yes When you come to King Jesus, you come with nothing, and he lets you in. Because all that's been required has already been accomplished by him. Every other kingdom makes you prove your worth to get in or to stay in. Jesus says, come to me, and when you come, you find out he's already done what's been required for you to come in and to stay in. If you're not a Christian, I'm I'm asking you, please, come to King Jesus today. Ask him to let you in. If you are a Christian... This morning, I need you to consider a few things. As you remember the future, as you practice seeing the parts of the kingdom now, I I need you to just consider at least this. Is it possible that you're so comfortable in this present age that your comforts have conformed to this present kingdom and you're no longer longing for the kingdom that is to come? Things are good right now. They're okay. So why would I long for that kingdom? I want to invite you to bring that to Jesus, to confess it, and to ask him to help you have a longing for this kingdom that's coming. Maybe you're here and you feel beat up today. You feel just weak, helpless. One of our values here is weak, so we're totally cool if you come here and you feel weak. I want to invite you to take some time here, just in your seat, just to remember the future to remember the future of Revelation 21, the kingdom that's coming, to breathe it in, to rest in it, to ask God to give you strength for today as you remember the future. And then as you remember the future and you hope in the kingdom and it fuels your resilience and your resolve, I want you to return to that prayer Jesus taught us to pray, specifically that one line, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. She would pray that and you would let that prayer form you Doxa, what would it look like for God to answer that prayer through your life, through, through this church, for the glory of God and for the good of this city? Let me take a moment just to close your eyes and bow your heads and just respond however you need to. 
not a Christian, I'd implore you, beg you to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to come in. If you are, man, are you too comfortable? Or do you feel helpless? Are you praying this prayer? Take a moment to consider it. We'll pray. us to long for this kingdom. Help us to have this image blazed into the forefront of our mind that there's another kingdom that is coming. Now teach us to be honoring here in our culture, in our city. But also teach us to be resilient. Teach us to love one another, to love our neighbor, to glorify you. Teach us to be a part of your, your kingdom as it's even here. Just as a part of this people as your presence is with us in this place. God, in the, in the midst of any weakness, in the midst of any struggle, in the midst of any pain, in the midst of any disappointment, in the midst of frustration, isolation, would we be swift to remember there's another kingdom coming. God, thank you. We long for As we wait, we'll wait with faith and with hope. Thank you for the picture of the kingdom you've given. Help us to remember.